Hi, Brandon. Uh, cool, cool to have you on the podcast. Yeah, yeah. Appreciate you having me on. <laughs> so for everybody who doesn't know you, who doesn't know what you do, um, please tell us a little bit about yourself. Sure. Yeah. So, I mean, there's so much content about there. I feel like I do a lot of the same interview, so I don't, I don't really do that part anymore. There's a lot about me out there. Um, but I was one of the first social media influencers. I grew a network of about 36 million followers across Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Very early, I started working with a ton of influencers. We have a social media agency, a production company, a venture studio. Uh, so we're very, very embedded into the influencer celebrity and the attention game. <laughs> so um, I think um, what everybody would love to know is the story behind Elevator Studio. So um, yeah, just just share share your story with us. <laughs> sure. So the difference between Elevator Studio and a traditional agency is that we are not a management company or we are not acting as agents to talent or to brands. So we don't represent anybody in an official capacity. We sit in the nice place in the middle where we're not babysitters uh, and we get to do deals with people without having the responsibility of the day-to-day -day management. We are very relationship driven. So we're dealing directly with the talent and the brands that we're doing the deals with. And we're dealing with decision makers who can get the deals done quickly and efficiently. <laughs> so um, how did you grow the, the whole company? Like, w what were the early days of Elevator Studio? How, how did the early days look like? Sure. So, um, I mean, we started like anybody else did. It just, it just kind of happened, right? So I had a huge following on all of the different social media pages that I had. I would have advertisers and, and brands reach out and they wanted to work with us. And we didn't have an agency, but we had the reach. So we were doing for ourselves what we now do for all of the influencers and, and the brands is that we were connecting these brands with our reach on social media. And then they said, hey, do you, you, know, do you work with anybody else or do you have access to any other pages that you don't own? And that's when we started reaching out to people and building relationships and saying, hey, you know, let us kind of sit in the middle and do this deal for you. We have the brand and you're the talent or vice versa. I have the talent and, and I can go out and find the brand for them. So we just kind of ended up as an agency by playing the agency game before it existed. So so basically the whole thing happened organically, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, just it just happened, yeah. <laughs> so um, I think uh, what everybody would love to know is like, um, what were your personal most important insights while scaling the business and really um, creating this big brand? So I think the, the most important thing is like, how do you differentiate yourself? What makes you different from, you know, the agency down the street? I don't even like calling ourselves a social media agency just because we are, but we're not. We do what some of them do, but we do a lot of things that the other ones don't do and don't have access to do, which is like dealing directly with talent without having to deal with their manager or their agent or their attorney, having a personal relationship with these people to scale. And then also having relationships with brand owners. You know, we don't we don't cold reach out to people. We don't do RFPs. We don't do any of that stuff to compete for business. People are coming to us and saying, hey, I, I heard that you guys did a campaign for this person or I heard you weren't working with this brand. We want to work with you, too. Yeah. So um, what 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 would you tell like everybody who's currently listening, who's like, 
um, doing like half a million a year, year uh, one million a year, um, to really grow to, to, to those big numbers? What would you tell them? So there's two things. Number one is finding out how do you get more dollars out of your existing clients. You know, it's the, it's the same thing that applies in the internet marketing rule. Like it's better to have 500 clients that you sell two things to instead of a thousand clients that you sell one thing to from a time perspective, from a scaling perspective, it all makes sense to have less clients, but do more work for them. Now, as far as scaling other clients and, and thinking outside the box, it really just comes down to who are the customer, you know, you take your best customers and you say, how can I replicate those, but in other industries, for example, if you have a, a skincare client and you're doing really well for them, you might go find a supplement company or you might go find a hair care company and you might go out and you find people who are in similar spaces that you can repeat the process with but aren't necessarily going to compete with your other clients. Okay, so um, so basically so basically um, you would say that um, to scale like to, to, to those numbers it's not about like selling low tickets to to a lot of people but like really focusing on the current client base you have and and really sticking to to high tickets or high ticket yeah. items. i don't necessarily think it's high ticket or low ticket i just think oh. that it's consistent business is if for oh, somebody business. for okay. somebody to to purchase from you you know i always tell my clients too like i i i i can do their test budgets you know starting smaller than they normally would, but we need to scale up quickly because I don't make money and it's not worth it for us to take clients at the at the lower entry point level of a test budget. But I also don't expect somebody to spend millions of dollars on their very first try. So we start somewhere in the in the medium, you know, area, that the the happy level for both of us. And then we just prove out what we do really quick so that we can both make money long term. Okay, so so you really try to get this this data fast, right? Yeah, I mean, the, the great thing about social and digital is that it can be optimized very quickly. You know, if you think about the old days, you buy TV media or you buy billboards or you buy magazines. I mean, you're talking about multiple quarters. You're talking about months and months and months of collecting data, trying to pinpoint where the traffic came from, trying to pinpoint where the sales came from, and then figuring out, did this magazine work or not? I can throw up a Facebook ad and within 24 to 48 hours, I'll tell you if it's winning or not, if we should try to scale it, if we should leave yeah. it alone, or if we should turn it off. And you can go out, you know, as opposed to magazines and billboards and otherwise, you can go out and you can create 500 ad sets tonight. You have 500 different ads running, but you can't tell, you know, Condé Nast or a magazine publisher, hey, I really need you to try out these 500 different ad copies for me and see which will work better. <laughs> so what we do is we're blessed with this technology that allows us to scale very quickly because we can optimize very quickly yeah true we, we can get the the feedback comes in really really fast right um yeah. so so you've talked a little bit about facebook ads and i think facebook ads is like a really interesting topic and a lot of entrepreneurs use it to grow their business and i also use like facebook ads to grow mine so um like speak a little bit about facebook ads like what were your personal like most important insights while running facebook ads or maybe you could also speak a little bit about like common mistakes that most people are not aware of who are running facebook ads so um yeah Sure. I think the biggest insight that um, 
that I could share is, is figuring out how to get the average order value higher. So people are really, really concerned with just getting the sale, not realizing sometimes that maybe they're having the highest conversion rate on their lowest margin product, which means you're, you know, uh, people always post their Shopify, you know, stores, sales numbers. Yeah. <laughs> revenue, revenue does not mean profit. You know, somebody could easily do a million dollars in a month, but then they make $41,000 in profit, which is great. But a lot of people are sharing those million dollar numbers as if they've made a million dollars. Now, it is possible to make a million dollars, but you need to do way more than a million dollars in sales in order to make a million dollars. And the way that you do that is you get your average order value up because the only thing that that is dynamic advice. is it, your, your, your cost of goods are, are set. Your only dynamic usually is your customer acquisition cost. So if you have a, a product that sells for $20 and you have a you know $4 cost of goods and then you have a $4 acquisition cost for your user, that means it costs you $8 to get that sale out the door and you profit 12. Well, what if you could sell them a second thing that costs $20? It still has the same $4 cost of goods, but now you don't have to pay for the acquisition fee again because they're already your user. Now you make 12 uh -huh. on the first item and you make 16 on the second item. Now we're in business because you don't have to pay for that additional uh, that additional sale. And you can scale like up uh, really, really fast, right? Yeah, you, you can scale it. And again, it, it really just comes down to optimizing the average order value of the customer. Um, another thing that I think is people are worried about, how can I acquire the cheapest users? Cheapest users aren't going to always be the ones that spend the most money. Maybe they're easier to sell or they're more gu gullible and naive to converting through offers in a funnel, but they're not the one that's going to spend a thousand bucks with you at checkout. Maybe if you're paying a little bit higher of a premium for a premium user, then you're going to have a higher lifetime value of the customer and average order value. So um, you, you are not like, uh, because I think about Facebook ads, one thing is like people always try to find like loopholes and try to get the cheapest clicks. And um, basically they are like targeting like um, not the best customers, right? If they, if, they, if they would pay like a, a little bit more, they would target like more high quality people. Well, think about this. Like, let's say your business was, you know, I know that there's a lot of speakers out there and they do like, let's say real estate seminars. If you say, come by, we have free coffee, free donuts, free bagels, and uh, there's 250 people allowed, you can easily fill up 250 people who will listen just to listen. Maybe they're completely broke. Um, you know, there, there's not, there's not, oh, sorry, there, um, there, there's not a lot of depth to that customer and they're not going to ever buy anything, but they'll fill the seat. So to be able to say that it's impressive that you fill a, a room full of 250 people is not impressive at all because those people are there for the coffee and donuts. So it's easy to get the cheap, those are the cheap clicks, right? Those are your cheap clicks. Now, if you pre-qualify the room, um, let's say that if you get 250 people in there, most of them are there for coffee and donuts. Maybe you have 50 people that are really there. And then if your close ratio is 2%, you're going to close one person. Oh, But man. if you pre-qualify the room and you charge, let's say $89 for the event, you still have coffee and donuts, but you're pre-qualifying people. You have 250 people that show up. 250 people are actually there for it. And then you have a 2% close ratio. Now you close five people with the same amount of people in the room because they're pre-qualified. 
So that's why it's important when you're when you're prospecting for new customers. It doesn't matter if it's social, doesn't matter what sort of paid media, direct response. The quality of the audience is just important as the cost that it costs or it takes to acquire them, because ultimately it determines how much money they'll spend with you now and also later. Yeah, great advice. Great advice. So so basically, um, the quality of the lead is like really, really important, right? And it's not about like huge numbers, but like getting the right people into the door, right? Yeah, and that's that's really what it comes down to. You know, it, it's um, it, that's why SEO, um, I'm sorry, uh, paid paid search and PPC works so well is because when you get social media traffic, it's great because it converts and it teaches people about your product that didn't know about it before. But nothing beats pay-per-click on Google because you're giving them exactly what they're typing in for. It's like they're looking for it. So when you type get car insurance Los Angeles, they are buying car insurance. <laughs> they're not looking. They're going to buy. They're just deciding who they're going to buy it from. So it, that's what it that's what it really comes down to at, at the, the core level. And that's why a lot of people do really well on Amazon with very, very odd products is because You know, like, let's say uh, there's a guy who sold half a million dollars in butter dishes. Why? Because there's not a lot of competition selling trays to put your butter in. And if somebody types that in, they're going to buy one. It's just a matter of which one they're going to buy. And if there's not a lot of options, the likelihood that they could buy yours is a lot higher. Great advice. Great advice. Because like um, what you're trying to say is, is the buying intent on uh, Google is like really, really high. Right. And also on Amazon. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. So um, let's speak a little bit about like like customer acquisition, because also a lot of people are currently listening to this podcast. who are just trying to, to start this whole entrepreneurship thing and they really try to get like um, the first few clients into the door. So um, what would you tell them? Like, what are the most important things um, to really uh, build, build a, a, a client base? So the first advice that I would give, let's say somebody has zero clients. Well, the first thing I would do is I would go out and get yourself clients at any cost. Meaning, okay. um, you know, let's say you're a social media agency and you want to get, um, you know, all of the local businesses in your area. Walk into a restaurant that doesn't have Instagram or Facebook or Twitter set up and say, hey, I would love to manage your social media and I'm willing to do it for free for six months. I'll set it up for you. I'll build the profiles. I'll build the content. I'll manage your email list and I'll do it for free for six months and then I'll give you the login credentials and you can have them. Well, now if you get a restaurant that's very popular and known in town and that people are aware of, what you do is you walk into the business next door and say, hey. I manage the social media for the people next door because you do. They're not paying you, but nobody needs to know that. You get to add it to your resume. And 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 now you have that marketability to be able to go out and nobody because nobody wants to be first. That's the thing. It's like none of these people are going to trust you. They're going to say, well, what clients do you have? Who else do you do this for? And if you say nobody, that's a scary answer and they can't trust you. So what I would, you know, what I what I even would consider doing is like go to a company and just say, hey, um, I would love to redesign your logo because your logo is very dated or your menus are very dated. Um, here's what I'm willing to do. And here's my invoice. And you give them an invoice and it's for one cent. And when they pay you that invoice, now they're a paying customer. Nobody ever discloses how much their customers pay them. They just disclose whether they're a customer or not. So go out and build your resume and sharpen your blade using these clients that you need and they need you. 
uh, to go build your resume. And then when you go approach other people and you have a half a dozen things on the list of people and businesses that they recognize, same thing. Go out, go reach out to people, go reach out to entrepreneurs, go reach out to real estate agents or anything else in your area. And it's like, whoever's the most visible that needs your help, go help them. And then that way you can go around town saying that you helped that person. <laughs> great advice. Great advice. So, so basically, um, when they, when they get like the first few clients, they should just repeat the process to get more clients and build their resume even bigger. Right. Um, or how would the scaling process look like for somebody who, who uses your method? Well, if you're going to be getting clients, you should be able to sell no matter what. So you should be able to sell somebody on getting your services. What I'm saying is a shortcut to making it easier on yourself, because if I have, if you have no clients at all, you can surely sign clients. There's no doubt about that. You can sign them. They can pay full price. You can get them to sign on with you, but it makes it so much easier when you have other clients because on your resume, the right? Yeah. You have a testimonial, you have a real life person that's out there getting help from you or a business that they recognize, and then their trust level automatically shoots up, and then their defenses shoot down and say, okay, now it really comes down to do I want this service, not do I trust this person, which is a hard barrier to break. <laughs> Great advice. So um, let's move on to and, and talk a little bit about like personal branding and building a brand. And also, I would love to hear your 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 insights on like what what were your personal like most important realization when it comes down to like managing managing those uh, big big influencers. Like, what have you learned from them personally before we talk about like building a personal brand and stuff like that. So the, the biggest uh, moment that I had was when I realized that just because somebody has a lot of followers does not mean that they're entrepreneurial. Okay. So there is such thing as a, let's call them a minimum wage influencer. So there are influencers who don't want to do any work. They don't understand business. They don't know how to read agreements. They don't understand how a business deal is structured. They are just looking to make money and not have to get a real job. Now, there are other people who are very entrepreneurial, who understand business, understand, you know, uh, ownership and equity. They understand revenue share. They understand that they should own and build businesses and products for themselves. And I think that figuring out who you're working with at the very beginning and figuring out what level of sophistication these people have is very important because it'll allow you to do deals with them the same way that, you know, you wouldn't take a low skilled person at a minimum wage job with no ambition, you're not going to go to that person and say, Hey, be my business partner. You're going to look at the person who shares a lot of similar traits and skills as you having a lot of followers does not automatically mean that they know what they're doing. It just means that they're good at creating content in whatever category they create content. Very, very, very big difference. So I think it really just comes down to treating every individual influencer like a different opportunity, like a different person because their skill sets, their ambitions, and their goals are a lot different. So that's the, the main point that I try to convey with influencers is you really don't know what you're going to get. You can't treat any two of them the same. Yeah, great, great, great. So um, also, let, let's talk a little bit about like uh, influencer marketing. Like um, for everybody who runs the business, like what would you tell them how they should uh, work with influencers or how would, should they approach like influencer marketing because i think we have the expert here on influencer marketing so yes. um, <laughs> we, we have to to talk about this topic so of course yeah. <laughs> yeah so 
So the the secret is you always like w- what it does is it's never going to change your business drastically. So that's the thing that 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 people you know automatically assume is like if I get this person to post about me, I'll never have to work again in my life. <laughs> and it's it's not the case. What you're doing is okay. I'll, I'll relate it to the example that I just gave. Having an influencer promote your business is the same as having other clients on your resume before going to a new client. It's it's about your resume. It's about your edification. So if you see a, a website and you're like, oh, I haven't heard of this site before. I'm not really sure if I should buy from them or trust them. But then you see an influencer that you recognize and you're like, oh, wait, they work with this person. Now I trust them because I know that person, which is why the influencer or celebrity that you pair with your brand or your product or your service Pretty should cool. match your industry. Yeah. So if you have a women's shoe company, you're not going to go get, you know, Snoop Dogg. Right? <laughs> yeah. If you have a kitchen and cooking product, you're not going to go get a, a woman UFC fighter. Right? <laughs> yeah. Everything that you do has to match who you go get. So if you sell, you know, men's t-shirts, go to YouTube and find a fashion influencer who just talks about how men should dress and why they're influential and, um, and, and you could see into their vision of their fashion kind of, of mystique and that aura that they have against their followers of that, that person being extremely well trusted in the men's fashion space. So that when you put, put them next to your t-shirt brand, it's like, oh, wow, they have this big style and fashion influencer for men promoting this brand edifies the brand a lot, which is why if you think back, you know, uh, a little bit, we have like Michael Jordan and he did the shoe deal with, with Nike. And then he ultimately had his own brand. Now he's a Jordan brand, which is great. Perfect fit. Basketball player, basketball shoot. Um, Gatorade, you know, sports drink, basketball player. Perfect. But then when Michael Jordan did a deal with Hanes, he did a Hanes deal uh, promoting T-shirts. Nobody understood that because he's not a fashion (laughs) influencer. They only got him because he's Michael Jordan. And that didn't help them make more T-shirts. It built maybe a little bit of trust to recognize that Hanes is this massive brand that can afford Michael Jordan, but he's not influencing anybody on how they dress, certainly, um, because he was influential as a basketball player, as an athlete, but not as a fashion icon. So why would you put him with a fashion brand? So the days of that happening are over. Now it's just going to be strictly people uh, sticking to their industry and promoting products that they care about and that they can influence. So um, it comes down to like two big ideas. And the first will be it's about like building a resume online. Like when you, you your brand um, has the right influences on their side, it really helps to build trust over time with your audience. Right. And the second thing is to really um, have like the right influencers in your circle. And like w- when you're a digital marketing agency, you shouldn't like partner up with, I don't know. Like Snoop Dogg, right? <laughs> I mean, if you're promoting, you know, a weed product and, you know, yes. you want to, great. That's, he's the right influencer for it. But again, you know, you just don't want to pick somebody because they have followers or because yep. they're famous. You have to fit your brand. Great. And um, what would you like, um, what would you say, like, what are like reasonable prices for, for everyone who's looking for influencers? Because I think when you're trying to, to work with influencers, the price is always very like, like, yeah, 
Big, big differences. So, uh, like, like, give everyone a ballpark what they should aim for when they are like a, a small company or when they are a huge brand trying to to create brand awareness. Like, speak a little bit about that. Yeah. So, there's no answer for that. So, <laughs> really, it comes down to yeah. <laughs> I wish because it would make everything a whole lot easier. But yeah. the way it works, like, it's like walking into a dealership and saying, "How much is a car?" smart car and it you know holds two people and it's you know twenty one thousand dollars do you want a eight million dollar bugatti or do you want one of the thousand options in the middle and that's really what it comes down to it's like an influencer you know could be five hundred dollars for a post they could be one hundred dollars for a post but then i've also paid influencers half a million dollars for one post so you that you can't really pinpoint that. Now, what I could tell you is that the things that are important are not their followers. It's the level of engagement they have, okay. their engagement. brand equity. Yeah, engagement, their brand equity. So who are they? What do they do for a living? Where can they be found? Can they be found anywhere besides online? Like the inherent value of having somebody that's on TV on a reality show and also big on Instagram is way better than having somebody who's just more uh, famous on Instagram. So um, that's one of the things that go into play. And then also calculating how relevant and visible are they? You know, if somebody had a hit song seven years ago, <laughs> they have 10 million followers. Or yeah. if somebody had a hit song one month ago and has 10 million followers, you want that person and they're going to be very, very, very different prices, but they both have 10, 10 million followers. So that's the confusing part is you have to take all these things into consideration, like how visible and current are, are they? Um, and, and how visible are they on these other platforms besides social media mediums and take those things into consideration. So it's like one big math problem. Yeah. Yeah. And I also think like a lot of, um, businesses also struggle to, to measure like the return on investment while they do, uh, influencer marketing. Could you also speak to that? Yeah. So return on investment is, you know, I, I would say it's very scientific when it comes to something like a Facebook ads. Because yeah. it gives you the data. Say one dollar spent, three point, <laughs> you know, three dollars and sixteen cents back. Very specific. Exactly, yeah. Influencer marketing, you're getting sales, but you're also getting brand awareness, which doesn't have a specific price tag. Sure. You're getting edification for your brand. So somebody's saying, "Wow, Kylie Jenner posted about this brand. They must be big." Yeah. That's in their mind now, and that's 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 what you paid her for. So there's sales, there's edification. There's brand awareness. What about followers? What about site traffic to pixel their data? Um, what about collecting email addresses? What about them following your other pages on social, like your Facebook or your Instagram or your Twitter? What about them typing your name on Google? All of these things have a collective ROI that we try to calculate when we give people um, you know, some, some forecast of what to expect from the campaign. Now, is it possible that Just using a sales-driven ROI that somebody could be profitable? Absolutely. You can go do a $50,000 campaign and make $150,000 back. But you could also do a $50,000 campaign and make $21,000 back, but then also get more followers, get more traffic, right. more emails, get more brand awareness and impressions. So it really just depends on what the stage of the company is. But my biggest advice is the runway matters, meaning... You can't go try one influencer, one post, 
and then it doesn't work and say influencer marketing doesn't work. <laughs> it, it, I think a lot of people do up, this, right? Yeah. Of course. It's the same thing as putting up a Facebook ad, giving it a $10 budget, and then not having <laughs> other ad sets to optimize your copy. It's never going to work. Influencer marketing is never going to work if you get one influencer to post about you one time. That's not what influencer marketing means. <laughs> so, um, like, like, what are like, because I think um, you have like a lot of experience in this area. Like, what are like other things you would tell our, our listeners? Like, um, maybe you could also speak a little bit about like mistakes they might not be aware of. Uh, around? Influencer marketing, yeah. So dealing with influencers is, is uh, my, my best piece of advice is, is make sure that the payment terms are structured properly, you know, which is well, a lot of people like to use us for this, just for the simple reason that we do it all the time. We have direct relationships with these people and we're always, we're always making sure that the work is done and that people are posting on time and then they're getting paid on time. So all throughout the process, process we're managing everybody's expectations to know Here's when you're going to post. Here's when you're going to get paid. Here's what needs to be done before the deal is considered complete. That way, everybody's expectation is set right. Influencers get hit up a lot. They get, you know, products being thrown at them. They get money being thrown at them, appearances being thrown at them. They get busy. <laughs> and guess what? For a random person that they've never heard from before, um, they might be slow to respond. So it's just really setting the expectation right around what they're supposed to do, when they're supposed to do it, and then how they get paid. Because, you know, they could they could operate a lot like a, a, like a contractor for your house. It's like you want them to go, you know, paint your walls, but you pay them first and then you can't get a hold of them for a week. Yeah. So um, let's talk about like building a personal brand, because I think like a lot of people are inspired to build their personal brand. Like a lot of people on social media encouraged to build a personal brand like Gary Vaynerchuk, Ty Lopez and all those other guys out there. Like what would you tell everyone who is currently listening, who wants to buy, uh, build a brand or not maybe a personal brand, but also a brand for their business? What would you tell them? Like give, give us your best advice. Yeah. So when you're, when you're building a business online, I always say that when you build a business, you have to be your industry. Don't be your company. So if you are in the, you know, if you're a personal trainer, you need to be posting about, uh, workout tips and you need to be posting about diet and nutrition. You need to put out content that will make you a trusted source in the space, not just talk about your product, which is why, you know, like nobody watches, uh, TV to watch commercials but they deal with the commercials because they're willing to get good content out of it. So they get good content <laughs> and then you, and then you give them commercials in the middle. That's great. But if you're just giving them only commercials, then they're going to get bored and change the channel, which is what they're going to do to your Instagram or your Twitter or your Facebook. So don't be an advertisement 24 seven promoting your company, teach people, educate people, give them good information. And then you will become the expert in their mind so that when they are ready to make a purchase in your category, then they're going to go to you because you've been teaching them so much. Um, when, you're when you're building as an individual, I mean, I think the biggest thing is just be transparent, be how you are. You're just, all you're doing is like, I think that the term creator was used a lot for a long time. It's like, oh, you're a creator, a Facebook creator, Instagram creator. And creator means that you're making something that's not existent already. I think that documenting is a better phraseology because if you're just documenting your life, people want to know what you're eating. People want to know what you're wearing. People want to know what you're 
where you're going and what you're doing. And if you have an interesting personality and people latch on to that, give them what they want. You don't have to act like you're somebody that you're not or that you're a certain way that you're not. You just be authentic to yourself. I see people who have, you know, kids. They never post about their kids. I see people who have uh, a wife or a husband never post about their wife or a husband because they think, well, maybe I'm going to lose followers if people know that I'm married. Or maybe I only post about workouts, so I'm not going to post about my kids like as if people with kids don't work out. Um, <laughs> so I think that people are being too selective on things that they share, and I think that they should share more. And that as long as it's transparent and as long as it's authentic, then people really care and you'll build a deeper level with it, of engagement with your followers. So it's like really about like being relatable, sharing your story, sharing your life and being like uh, authentic and honest with your following. Right. Yeah. I mean, you know, if they they can go watch a movie if they want to see something fake, but they're they're following you for a reason. <laughs> they want to see, you know, it's it's. It, it's no different from me making up fake advice and putting it out. Why would I get, why would I give out fake advice or why would I pretend like, you know, like I, I, half of the, half of the girls on Instagram, you, you might not even think that they own any clothes because they don't want you to see them wearing clothes. It's like bikinis all day. Right? <laughs> like, yeah. Is that, is that real life? Like, do you go to Starbucks in the morning and get a coffee and you're wearing a bikini? Cause that's what all your photos show, <laughs> you know? So it's, it really just comes down to showing people more and giving them depth. Like if you, if you're a fitness influencer, but you also play video games, post about video games, you know, like I, I'm, I'm, I'm an entrepreneur. I'm in the business space, right? I'm in that category, but I post more food than I do anything else. <laughs> I post my kids all the time and, and, and I'm posting between food and kids. I outweigh business two to one. <laughs> Man, I love your advice. So, um, like, um, What would you say is the time frame that people should expect? Why they try to build their resume? Why they try to 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 grow to grow their brand? Because I think like it's really a long term play, right? And um, I think like most people are really like short sighted. So um, maybe you could also speak to that. Yeah, I mean, it, again, when you're documenting, you're not doing anything different. It's a slow, methodical process. If you think it's going to happen overnight. Maybe you make one crazy viral video and then you get a million followers, but you don't want to be that person anyways, because they, they always taper off. They always die out. They're only known for that one thing. You, you should never worry about the number of followers that you have and just the quality of content that you put out. And eventually the audience will come and the audience will come and the audience will come. But if you're just going out trying to get the most followers that you can really fast, there's no relationship with those people and they're not genuine in following you. So I think that putting out the really, really, really good content and just playing the waiting game, there's no rush. I mean, it's just like saying like, hey, you know, um, I'm 20. How, how fast can I get to, to being 40 years old? Well, you do that by waiting 20 years. So how fast do you get, you know, don't worry about how fast you get to a million followers. Worry about how fast you can build a personal brand so that you can have five years into a personal brand or 10 years into a personal brand. Because by the 10 year mark, who regardless of how many followers you have, you know, I, I have a guy once he spoke at one of our, our events. He said, I have 12 followers on Instagram. He said, but they're all clients and they all pay me over $500,000 a year each. <laughs> would you rather have, would you rather have a million followers or would you rather have 12 clients, 12 followers, and they all pay you half a million dollars a month? 
or a, a year. I'm sorry. <laughs> I think most people would love to change with this guy, right? <laughs> uh, well, that's what I'm saying. So it, it really just people people get people get mixed up in the number and look at it like this. Let's say you have a, a sandwich shop and you're in um, you're in one city. You're in 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 uh, uh, you're in Florida in Orlando, right? You have this sandwich shop, one location, not McDonald's in every city, one location. Why do you need a million followers? You don't. You need 2,000 people to follow you, and they like all your photos, and they come into your sandwich shop twice a week, and they buy a sandwich from you. You have 4,000 orders that you get from those 2,000 customers, and they engage with all your social media following. They tell all your friends about it. What if you had a million followers, but they all lived in California and New York and Idaho and Washington? It wouldn't do you any good. It looks good on paper, but how are, how are you ever going to make money from those people? Do you want to do it to look cool or do you want to do it to actually build your business and build your brand? Man, that's so true because um, I thought about one thing because um, we had a billionaire on the podcast, a Swedish guy named uh, Martin Sundquist. And I just remember he, he has like uh, two posts on Twitter, <laughs> a Facebook account with 300 friends and like uh, 100 followers on Instagram. But he's a billionaire, right? So uh, he manages one of the largest hedge funds here in Euro, uh, Europe. So, uh, yeah, because yeah, I think I mean. people mix like fame with, with like fame equals fortune, right? But that's not true. Yeah, I mean, fame is is popularity uh fame is um maybe even not popularity sometimes fame is just more people know who you are but a lot of people know who you know who like a lot of people are very known that aren't very well liked so if 10 million people know who you are but nobody likes you then you know <laughs> having a million followers isn't really a good thing because nine million people that know you hate you and don't follow you Yeah, <laughs> it won't do you any good, right? Yeah. Yeah, so um, I think this episode was amazing. Um, at the end, I always ask like five personal questions, but um, what would be your best advice for everyone who's uh, listening to this episode and maybe also tell uh, where people can find you on the social webs, connect with you and so on and so forth? So, yeah, I mean, the, my, my advice is always just get started. Go out and 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 test out your idea, test out your theory, talk to people. Don't sit and write reports about it and business plans and do all of that stuff. Don't worry about building an investor deck and trying to raise money. It just if you want to go start a clothing line, go make a couple pieces of clothing and try to sell them. Don't sell them to your friends and family because they're liars. Go sell them to other people out in the street who don't know you and aren't going to babysit you and handhold you and say, oh, you did a great job. <laughs> if your stuff actually sucks. So if you want to, if that's your goal, go do it. Don't don't think that you are, need to order 10,000 pieces. Go sell 10 before you try to sell 10,000. And I think that that's the most thing is like people get, um, it's analysis paralysis. Like they paralyze yep. themselves by an, uh, analyzing too much. And Trying try to make everything perfect. Yep. Yeah. And then before you know it, seven years has passed by. And then the person's like, yeah, one day I'm going to start a clothing line. And it just never <laughs> happens. Um, so that's the biggest piece of advice. And as far as finding me, I'm on Instagram at money. I'm on Snapchat at money and I'm on Twitter at CEO. <laughs> I love those nicknames. So yeah. um, the, the first question will be, what are your three uh, favorite books? 
so yeah. yeah so so uh secrets of power persuasion is really good and that's by roger dawson that's a sales book it's sales and negotiating i think that that in any business no matter what business you're in or if you're not in any business and you're just playing the game of life you should know how to sell because it just teaches you how people work and how um to to make sure that you're always getting a fair deal um another favorite book of mine is called predictably irrational predictably irrational yeah fantastic it's on psychology it's also a little bit into sales and figuring out how people think and why they react the way that they do and then of course rich dad poor dad is the one that changes a lot of people's life in terms of teaching them the difference between assets and liability. I think it's a great read. Somebody should read it probably every like two years. <laughs> so um, the next question will be, uh, what are your three uh, most favorite movies? Ooh. Um, so Shawshank Redemption is one of my favorites. Yeah. Um, that's, that's a great movie. Um, Let's see. Wedding Crashers is super funny. And I would say Super Bad is another funny movie super that bad, I really yeah. like. Yeah, I'm, <laughs> I, I really like Jonah Hill. I really like. Uh, um, and then and the Wedding Crashers is just a great movie. Step Brothers, that's a good fourth one. I, I really like older comedy movies. <laughs> um, the next question is, what is the most useful product or service that you have bought in the last couple of months or years? So one one tool that I use that I think is just really, really handy is it's a CRM that I use. It's not too difficult, and I don't use a lot of the features. use the core features, main one being, so it's a, it's, a, it's a platform called HubSpot. HubSpot. And what I do, it, it installs a pixel inside of the emails that you send, and it will you know when you read each time they read the email. What will happen is, let's say I send you an email and I say, hey, where's my money, right? Yeah. It's going to send me a notification and it's going to say, you opened the email 10 seconds ago. So I now I know that my message was delivered, whether you like it or not. <laughs> so it's a and cool then, hack. Well, it's, a cool, it's, it's really good information because it's like, you know, when you text message, um, uh, you can read receipts on, right? So yep. sometimes the message says sent, the person doesn't have their receipt, so you don't know when they get it. Maybe they're busy or maybe they read it right away and they're just ignoring you. Well, on email and business especially, it's a good way to take people's temperature. You email a client and you're excited to get their proposal started and they open up your email seven seconds after you send it. That's a good sign. And then if they respond right away, that's a good sign too. But sometimes I'll send an email to people and they'll open it 10 times and it'll take like a week. And then they'll respond to me like, sorry, I was busy. I was traveling. I just saw your email. And I'm like, you're a damn liar. You open <laughs> So it's, it's really good because it just it gives you a small bits of insight on people, how they think, what they think, their response time and what it means. So then I could also be comparative and I could say, look, you know, when somebody responds to me right away, they always do the deal. But when somebody takes a long time to respond, they never do the deal. So what it allows you to do is build better processes around follow-up and getting people and striking while the iron's hot. So it gives you more information than just like when they open the email, if you actually go out and apply that knowledge in the way that it should be used. HubSpot, right? Yep. HubSpot, yeah. Yep. Got it. 
So um, the, the fourth question will be, uh, what have you learned in the last two years that excite you the most or that were like the most important insights uh, to, for yourself? Because we had like some guests who shared something like deeply personal about their family or about like their business or relationships. Um, yeah, just just share your most important insights you had in the, in the last uh, two years or three years or so on. So I'm I'm really digging in right now to diving uh I'm digging into diving back in to uh to real estate pretty heavily and I'm doing a lot of research around that and it I think that again people make the mistake just to lead back to rich dad poor dad of confusing assets and liabilities and I think that people really 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 spend a ton of money on things that they shouldn't and they're not building things that will allow their money to make money for them. And putting putting my money to work is what I've really been like aggressively researching, especially the past six, seven months, is just figuring out, you know, earning good money is great, you know, building businesses is great, but how can I take the money that I'm making along the way while I'm building these businesses and have that money, you know, be an employee for me instead of just sitting into a bank account and saying, how can each dollar go to work and produce more dollars? Because then it becomes not a necessity to work, but a luxury or a lifestyle to be able to say that I want to be doing deals still. I want to be in business. I want to be making deals and not having the requirement of, hey, I can't pay rent next month if I don't go out and work. So it's just building more of the asset column is really, really, really what I'm deep diving into. I love this. I love this. So um, the last question is, um, what would you tell your 20-year-old self? Oh, geez. How long do you have? <laughs> 20 minutes. <laughs> so when I, I'll tell you this, when I, um, when I was 22, I, I bought a bunch of real estate. Funny, this transitions over to this story. I bought a bunch of real estate and I lost it all. And I went broke and I had no money and I was a hundred grand in debt and I lost two million bucks in real estate. And oh, man. Oh, man. Yeah, it was, you know, it was pretty bad, but I thought my life was over because I thought, oh, 22 years old, 22 years I've been working for this and now my credit shot, I have no money, I'm in debt, my life is over and I went into depression for several years and I still several battle with it today. Oh, oh yeah, I, I, I mean, I still battle with it today and it's been, ten, you know, 10 plus years and because it really messes you up, you know, chemically and it, 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 it imbalances you and it de- activates certain parts of your brain and you're not able to use those anymore. So, but, um, what I would tell my younger self is, you know, today I'm, I'm 36, 36 is super young. 46 is super young. 56 is super young because people are living to be older and older and older and the technology for health and healthcare and things like that are getting so much better. Your life is just starting at 22 and it's okay to go out and fuck it all up. Because you could do that a hundred times and still be okay. And what I what I thought was I've been working for this for 22 years. Not really. I only started working when I was 18. I only had been working at it for four years. So I had a good 18 years. I had a really good four years. But then that one year was really, really, really messed up for me. And I felt like it jeopardized like my entire life and my ability to succeed because it put such a damper and a roadblock on the upward traje trajectory that I had. And instead of just walking it off, shaking it off, getting my head back in the game 
and going out and rebuilding, I took a six or seven year break almost of not really doing anything and just kind of, uh, you know, sleeping in my sorrows and drinking a lot of alcohol and trying to get rid of all the thoughts that I had about the success that I was having that I wasn't having any. going and living in the past for that one incident oh man i i i i really loved this episode i think your advice was amazing and all those things you have shared with us um brandon thank you very very much for being on the podcast yeah. right on i appreciate you man thank you for having <laughs> me see ya